everybody. I'm not Randy, I'm Ken. But this is episode 401 of This Is Whole Life, and I am just thrilled to have you here and a little sad. Melanie, are you a little sad? I'm a little sad. Melanie's a little sad because, uh, by the way, Ken, lead pastor at Whole Life, Melanie, worship pastor at Whole Life, and Randy, missing in action at Whole Life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He he, uh, went down to Fort Myers because I guess... People think he's a big deal or something because he, I guess. he honestly I is, is, if we're just being honest about it, right? Yeah, we sent him on digital mission work. Yeah. That's, well, that's what we'll call it. Yeah, he went down. So he went down to Fort Myers for a gathering of church communications people to talk about mm-hmm. digital ministries. And we were super proud that he was asked to go do that because of the great work he does here at Whole Life. And so just uh, kudos to you, Randy. Um, thanks for for everything you do to make whole life great. And then I, one of the things I think is such a cool value of whole life is that we don't believe in keeping it to ourselves. If um, we want, if somebody wants some information, we don't have proprietary, see if I can say that, proprietary information here. We're willing to share whatever. So, Well, um, and I have to say too, um, I got to brag on our Randy here because I got a text message from somebody last night who attended and said, Randy killed it. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I have no doubt that that uh, that that's exactly what happened. I told I I texted him and tried to make him afraid, but I don't know. If that I did. Out. I, I so did I. I texted him yeah. right before he went on and said, "Don't mess this up." <laughs> <laughs> nice, because yeah. uh, we're so of, supportive. We are. We are supportive. He knows. He knew exactly what was coming his way. So yes. I have to say, I got some uh, I got some emails this week about our last podcast. People were pretty excited about 401, so that was pretty cool. And uh, also got a, a, a follow-up email from uh, the email that we'd, I'd read on 401 that was kind of talking about somebody who had not had a, a, a great experience and had felt kind of um, not really connected mm-hmm. here at Whole Life. And we kind of shared that last week. And if you want to hear that, you can go back and listen to episode 400. But that person followed up, sent, a, sent another email to the podcast and to us and just said, hey, appreciated it. Thanks for thanks for owning it, for putting it out there. And I felt like, you know, you handled it, it well. And so they appreciated right. that. And so thought I'd pass that on okay. too. Because like we said, we're, we, we value authenticity here at Whole Life. We don't do everything perfectly. Mm-hmm. We'd like to. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd like to be the, you know the most awesomest ever, but we fail here and there and, and maybe more, th- more often than we'd like to think. Um, but, uh, it's important for us to talk about it when it happens and, um, and figure out how we can continuously get better and, and be a better place and a more inclusive, more loving, all the things that really matter to us here at Whole Life. Mm. Yeah. Um, now, Melanie, join us in the studio today. It's not just you and me. We actually have a, a big group of people in here. Yes. And um, I'm going to go ahead and start off with our, our, I feel like I'm back doing professional radio again. <laughs> not because Randy's not professional, but because Randy um, is so talented, he actually hosts and engineers at the same time. Mm-hmm. I'm not talented enough to do that. So I'm hosting just- today, but I'm not engineering it because that's just not my thing. I've always been the face, not the uh, behind the scenes person, and that's you know, for better or worse, it is what it is. I'm not smart enough to be the person behind the <laughs> scenes. So, um, so Max is uh, our our assistant communication director is running the soundboard. So, Max, good to have you on board, sir. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I don't know if your mic was on or not because I didn't quite hear it. But uh, yeah, you want, not going to happen. All right. Well, it is what it is. Max, we're super happy that you're uh, that you're engineering. This is kind of one of the things that made me happy. Max, when you came on, because 
Randy will do this podcast with a 106 degree fever because mm-hmm. he will not mm. miss a podcast. He does not. I remember one time he was so sick and I said, Randy, it'll be okay. Don't do it this week. He goes, okay, okay, I won't do it then. I won't. <laughs> Next thing I know, there's a there's an episode dropping. It's like, this is Randy. I don't have enough <laughs> strength to do a full episode, so I'm just here to let you know. And you guys know. You've heard that episode. So anyway, so I'm like, Randy. So anyway, so I'm really thrilled, Max, that now Randy has the freedom to be sick. Not because Ken can't right. tell him to stay. I'm not that mean of a boss. I'm like, go home, be sick. It's okay, but... But because Randy just takes it that seriously, He's and we so appreciate dedicated. that about him. And yeah. um, But we also appreciate it when he is able just to recover, because that's important. So, Max, yep. glad to have you on board. And then join us in the studio as our guest um, speaker from this uh, previous uh, Saturday here at Whole Life. Yay! Yeah, and Andreas Bakai. Hey, good to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. Coming to us all the way from Wally World out in Walla Walla, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the Onion Patches, the State Penitentiary. You know, I wish you hadn't put those two things in the same <laughs> sentence, but it's yeah. okay. Before I before I answer some of the slanderous charges against Walla Walla. Well, was it, did I say something that was incorrect? We'll get to it. Let me just say I'm in awe. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in awe of your radio personality. It's obvious you've done this before. So listening to you, it feels like a podcast I would listen to every week. You just have an you, excellent Well, Andreas, we do have 400 episodes. Yeah, You're welcome you... to catch up if you want. <laughs> I may listen to more than one okay. podcast. Let maybe <laughs> yeah. let's say that. Okay. But we'll back that. to your charges about Walla Walla yeah. only having onions in the state pen. Well, yeah. Walla Walla is a very refined place, I'll have you know. I didn't say that was the only thing okay. they said. I just right. said that's what they're most known for, besides, of course. We've got the Blue Mountains. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, we have people who love to go there to yeah. go to vineyards because they mm-hmm. want to do tasting of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, we really? Have, what, what kind of different things would they be tasting out there? You know, like grape juice. Grape juice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. That sounds like, you know, okay. There's lavender farms. La- lavender farms. Lavender. There's multiple lavender farms. Lavender. Lavender. Okay. I'm telling you, Walla Walla is a place to be. Southeast Washington. So, no, I, I want to go, ba- go back to lavender farms. What is this? What, what, what is, I mean, I well, assume there's lavender there. One. Okay. So we have uh, Jean Paul, and he is a Frenchman who is. Um, expatriated to Walla Walla, yep. Okay. And he has his own lavender farm and he always makes focaccia bread and we're very elevated in Walla Walla. Wow. So there are sweet onions, the best onions you're going to have. Oh, that's for sure. Walla Walla sweet. I don't Not deny Vivaldi. that. Not Vivaldi, no. Walla Walla sweet. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Stuff will change your life. Oh, it's they're fantastic. <laughs> Phenomenal. Best onions ever, yeah. for sure. So we have that. There is a state pen, uh, which is you know, that's cool to keep the <laughs> state safe. <laughs> cool to keep <laughs> but it's a wonderful place. Wonderful. And awesome. I live there with my wife. Yeah, who's joining us. I was going to say that. And C- Eden. Cassandra's here in the studio with us. Just yell hi really loud, Cassandra. Hi. There we go. There we go. And then Eden, you want to yell hi really loud, Eden? Hi. Now, how yeah. old is Eden? Eden's 10. She's in fifth grade. Fifth grade. Yeah. That's right. And I want you to know that Eden has impeccable taste. Mm. She picked what we were going to eat for lunch, and it was delicious. Outstanding. Mm. Excellent choice, Eden. Well done. Very well done. So so that's your family. How long have you been in Walla Walla? Uh, We moved there in 2019. Okay. Um, So we had... 
Wow, pre-pandemic then. It was pre-pandemic. Okay. And here's the thing. I'll take another step back. We lived in Seattle for about a decade. We moved to the Auburn area, or as Americans would say, Auburn. <laughs> You know, I was telling you mean the right way? Yeah, oh yeah. I tell people I live in America. I tell people I lived in Auburn, and they just look at me blankly. I'm like Auburn, Auburn. It's it's horrendous. It's truly horrendous. So we were. Did their faces light up when you finally say Auburn? Well, it's just like when I was on the plane asking for water, and the flight attendant looked at me, and they were like, "Excuse me, sir, water, please." Um, excuse me, what do you like, water? And I'm desperately, I'm panicking here because I know she's going to move on if she doesn't understand what I'm saying. Like water. She's like Coke. I'm like no water. And then how do you get even with the uh, accent? How do you get Coke out of listen, water? I think people just got confused, and so they decide they don't want to try and understand what I'm saying. They're just hoping you'll give uh, up. So maybe next time, tell say melted ice. I should try it. I should try through. it. So it's, I'm just realizing, Melanie, ridiculous. that what we should have gifted him with is a is a, like a little notepad or like one of those etch a sketches oh, that he goodness. can like put <laughs> words in properly for. <laughs> so he can ridiculous. So, um, yeah, so, and it's happened to me multiple times. And I remember one time getting so desperate, I asked the person in the middle um, if they could tell the flight attendant I wanted water. And he looked like and sounded with his accent that maybe English was a second language and maybe Spanish was his first language. So I'm going to him like, agua, agua, right? <laughs> Because it's easier to say in Spanish. Maybe that's what you ought to start doing on yeah. the plane. I bet you that would actually really work. Agua, please. Because I can't say it in English in a way that, because my English is too good for you Americans. You can't actually speak that language. Oh, man. But eventually I did, I did get water. But um, so uh, back What did to you get? Water. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, water. Okay. See, people will be like, they, they will often go, can I have a bottle of water, please? I'm like, well, no, I'm not from Southeast London. I'm not Cockney. You know, there are many accents in England, and they, they do not all sound like Oliver Twist. You know, so let's let's just be real about this. Um, so we were in Seattle for about a decade, um, and I was pastoring in a church in Seattle when five years ago. I was asked to put my name forward for the lead pastor role at the Walla Walla University Church. Through a series of circumstances, God made it quite clear and opened doors for my family and I to move there. We had one year pre-pandemic, and then the whole thing shut down. So, you know, the second year after that, you're trying to pick up the pieces and and put it together. Um, and then, you know, year four and five have been really, really good. Yeah. We've enjoyed being in the community. We understand the rhythm of life on a campus. We understand our members and we have, by the grace of God, really just flourished there. We love being there. Um, and it's it's been a good place for us. My family, my my daughter, although she's putting her hand on her face, I don't know why. You like Walla Walla, <laughs> don't you? Yeah. Yeah, see? <laughs> Well, I will say that Walla has a tradition of outstanding pastors. When I was pastoring out in that conference, it was Alex Bryan, mm -hmm. and then uh, and actually he was just actually I was actually there when uh, Carl Hafner, oh. uh, the legendary Carl Hafner himself, the legendary, yes. who uh, made me almost want to give up uh, preaching because he taught a seminar on on how to preach, and as I was a brand new pastor, and I. 
I I spent 25 to 30 hours a week on my sermon. I was I had a two church district, and I was like, oh, how would you do that? <laughs> well, let's just say that tradition has not continued. No, 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 no. University it, you're right because because you put hours. because you put 40 hours in. That's right. That's that's what I can tell from the sermon we heard today. You put in you put in some serious time, and you're like my my staff like love you because you you do manuscripts. Oh yeah, which. Ken doesn't do manuscripts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Ken's, yeah, yeah. Ken's not able to do that. I anyway. I manuscript because unlike Ken, I don't have the ability to uh, memorize my whole sermon. Yeah, I, Ken doesn't is. have that mm-hmm. ma- capability either. Just okay. listen. Just listen to first service and second service oh, okay. and decide whether it's memorized <laughs> or not. <laughs> so anyway, all right. So anyway, uh, perhaps we're laying too many secrets out at this point. But um, Andreas really enjoyed um, your sermon today. And I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper into it with you. And the most important question I have to ask first, you're not in jail. Because I want to know how that that story story ended. (laughs) Because if you didn't hear the sermon, basically he's a, he's a, you're I'm a JFK. JFK. Watching somebody else's luggage who seems like a nice person, but he's never really met them before this. And then, and it was, by the way, perfect story to illustrate where you're going. Uh, kudos. I, it was perfect. But I just, I wanted to know, you, you didn't go to jail. And here's the thing, because I'm sitting across from two, you know, master homileticians in Ken and also you, uh, Melanie, you, you know that I probably made a mistake because I set something up and then didn't conclude it and i had multiple people come up to don't me don't call at the it a end. mistake it was an intentional an, that would the point was not what happened that's why we have podcasts okay. right but we have podcasts so that we can ask the mm-hmm. questions that that weren't maybe the main point but okay. we want to know an answer to that's we're going to so. call it a teaser it's yeah a teaser. that's what it was okay. you were setting it up for podcast is what you okay. were doing because i told you were going to do podcast so some people had asked me they said what happened so what happened is i came out of security and this was the transition between international and domestic. And you've flown before where you have to do this weird thing and you yeah. sort of recheck your bags, right? Right. And then they send it on. And that was the point where this woman, and by the way, she was a woman. I mean, she wouldn't have been my mother's age, but she was older than me, younger than my mother, um, had asked me, hey, would you mind watching my bags? She had some large bags. And I took it through because all I had to do at that point was just check it through. And I waited on the other side, and that's when I started to get the feeling, wait, I shouldn't have done this. Mm. I waited for about 20 minutes with the bags. And it was a mixture of increasing fear and also just needing to catch another flight. And I just walked away while praying no one's watching me walk away (laughs) from unattended bags in New York City. So, so, so she never came back for her bags. If she did, I wouldn't know. I was, I was gone. You left. So, I left and took my next flight to Chicago and from Chicago. Did to, she tell you what she was going to go try? Did she was like, "Hey, I got to go to the bathroom," I or can't was even it? Remember? Just, you just somehow she. Oh, I do feel like you were being set up, though. Yeah, I feel I like do. that for sure. I somehow she made me feel like I was just doing her this small favor to just help her with her luggage because yeah. she had too much. It was something <laughs> along those lines. It's like, yeah. oh, I have too much. Would you be willing to just help me um, so we can get through with it? And I was kind of like, yeah, sure. The naivety. Yeah, I have and, too much because I'm only allowed to bring two bags. And, of uh, cocaine. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, Andreas, we're so glad that you're. I'm just grateful for the mercy yeah. of God. Yeah, we're so glad that you uh, that you wound up in the pulpit and not, and the, not in, in Walla Walla, Walla Penitentiary. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so so that's how the story ends. You just you just left. I just left. And so either that poor lady had her bag stolen because she was honest and just you know yeah, a really sorry, long lady. trip to the bathroom or something. Or sorry, it is what it is. Yeah. You did, by the way, in my opinion, you did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally did the right thing. Yeah, Can't, and I would never do it again. Yeah. Kids don't look after strangers' bags in airports. Yeah. Definitely. Doesn't the overhead voice keep saying that? Please, if someone tells you that to watch their bags. Do not the, do this. Here's the thing. I just I was moving from England, so I only understood British, not American. <laughs> <laughs> that completely makes sense to me, actually. In England, yeah. we actually call it baggage, not luggage. Oh, yeah, okay. baggage. So yeah. So and you go on say, holidays. Go you go on holidays rather than vacation. Vac- exactly. And, yeah. and we eat crisps, not chips. Yeah. So. And you use but the lift. You got it. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't quite and, catch it. And you write in the saying. tube. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you have I was tea. confused. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was good. To, I was glad to see your daughter's picked up that uh, English tea habit too, right? Did I see that she had some tea this morning? She drinks more tea than anyone else in the house. <laughs> good job. And I brought some tea from England, Tetley's, Tetley's, or was it, no, PG Tips, which is an English black tea that most people drink in England. And I brought some over and I was very happy and um, she really enjoyed it. She made short work of it. She would have two cups of tea a day, like a real British girl. Good job. Yeah. Well done. So she's into <laughs> well tea. That's good to know. Yeah. Is that your favorite kind of tea, the, the one that he just mentioned, Eden? Well, I like it, but I usually have Earl Grey. Earl oh, Grey. Okay. Dear Lord, she's 10, friends. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but she's almost 18. Yeah, she is. You'll actually understand that in a, in eight years, what I meant yeah. by that. So, I don't know. I yeah. like the brown kind. That's Yeah, the brown kind. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I kind of take uh, – uh, there's some show where, uh, you know, some show about soccer in England or something with mm-hmm. the – is it – I don't – I'm not – real Ted Lasso or yeah, something. Yeah, Ted Lasso. And I tend to take Ted's approach to tea when it comes to tea. It's like just oh, dirty get water. Here. Get out of here, It's man. just dirty water, man. This is blasphemy. I, I can't help it. You I, have the entire God British... made me the way God made nah, me. Nah, man. <laughs> what? By the way, an important thing for you to know, Andreas, is we always divert on some food topic oh, in this. Yeah. We all every time there's something. So congratulations. We have tea. Tea. It was tea today. Yeah. All so right. if anybody wants to talk about crumpets, now would be the time. No. Now would be it. No. Okay. Yeah. I wouldn't do it no. because unfortunately, I think I mentioned to you the English um, gastronomic scene is very poor. So much so that the national dishes of England are basically Indian food. Because who wants to have spotted dick? Yeah. <laughs> do you? Do you want to have no, spotted dick? No. no what, is, what is that? Just, just so that? Can we just... Spotted dick is... Did you say toad in the hole? I'll tell you. Spotted, these are actual dishes. These are literal dishes. I would have it when I was in school, in primary school. Max, spotted we may dick, need to put like a uh, dick parent is, advisory is at the beginning a, of this one. It's a sponge with um, raisins in it. And it usually has some... Um, it's usually sort of soaked in a... In some kind of syrup. Huh. It's not that great, truly. I'm not going to defend no, spotted I, dick. Yeah, I, no, I... Um, toad in a hole would be a Yorkshire, a Yorkshire pudding. And a Yorkshire pudding is a type of um, uh, pastry, and it would have a sausage in it. What can I tell you? Well, not that great either. 
Uh, so the, huh. I'm just telling you with with stuff in England, it it gets a little shady. I mean, you know no about kidding. shepherd's pie, right? Yeah, that, that's you know about shepherd's pie. I like shepherd's Beef pie. Beef Wellington. Yeah. You know they have roast potatoes, but. I don't know. If we have Andreas on here on a regular basis, I have a feeling we're going to stop talking about the food. (laughs) I'm I'm telling you. The FCC will shut us down Uh, for a while. I don't know if the FCC has anything to do with podcasts, but (laughs) I just think I'll throw that. That comes from my radio background. Here's what you should do. If you go to England, you should definitely have. Yeah. This is amazing. You should have... Sticky toffee pudding. If yes. you've never had that, okay. you would because you're yeah, in New Zealand. That's excellent. That's phenomenal. Yeah. And then custard. I love custard. Mm-hmm. Um, custard, which is warm ambrosia custard, because here they tend to do custard ice cream. Right. But in England, it's like warm, and you have it with like apple and rhubarb crumble. Oh, it's that delicious. sounds good. Where were you before we went to London? Boy, um, I could have used some. Yeah, no. All I could find was beef Wellington. No, don't do spotted. that. No, okay. No. Yeah. Okay. I know it's it's true. Fish and chips. Yeah, that's, fish and chips. That's, I think yeah. people like fish and chips. I like they? the chips part of that. You don't like the fish as much. No, vegetarian. Yeah. So I'm with you, and, and so am I. But yeah, English food is it leaves a lot to be desired. But they've been getting a lot better. So yeah, I'm a little curious. In New Zealand, they had a phrase. If I said like today when we went and grabbed some lunch, if I said, hey, is it your shout? Oh, Would yeah, you know shout. what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's your turn to pay. Yeah. 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 I did not. First time I went, I took my youth group out for pizza in New Zealand. Yeah. Mike, your shout? Your shout. And, and you're like, like, what? What? And yeah. it's like on the water on the plane. I was like, well, what? And, and so I thought I just hadn't heard them right. So they slowed it. Is it your shout might I'm like i'm not this shouting yet but i'm about to feel like i'm about to <laughs> shout so yeah who's paying that's that's what's up there so anyway and in england as well as new zealand i think we use the word oi a lot oi yeah, yeah. oi yeah. oi come here yeah it's just uh, me hey. hey yeah and yeah. we say bruv instead of bro yeah. yeah oh yeah they do that in ted lasso too yeah so bruv. i feel so much more cultured having watched ted lasso yeah i guess that added <laughs> It's a it's it's must have cultural learning for for if you want to know about Brits, yeah. The dry wit, the the pessimistic view of life, you know. Yeah, Ted Lasso teach you a lot. Yeah, so so that kind of takes us back a little bit towards the sermon. So let me let me go ahead and and kind of if you didn't know Andreas's uh, life story a little bit, he was born. In, in lived in until Ghana. the age of seven mm-hmm. in Ghana, mm-hmm. Ghana, Ghana. You got it. Mm-hmm. And then moved to England mm-hmm. at age seven. Mm-hmm. Kind of went all the way through what we would call college mm-hmm. there um, before moving to the states. So yes. I wanted to kind of dig into um, what it was like for you growing up in the first seven years in Ghana, and then what it was like to make the transition to a new country, to a different place. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, um, I don't remember much of my childhood, and that sounds strange, but I remember it in memories. So I would often have my mother or other people who knew me in Ghana say, do you remember this person or do you remember this event? And I wouldn't until they said it. And then I'd say, well, this isn't really my memory. It's sort of been imputed or put in my brain. I don't think I have that memory. But I do remember um, physically feeling different from the fact that I got my first coat when I was seven. I remember being on the plane and my mom sort of gives me a, a coat and it feels like 
a toy until I get to Heathrow and it's not a toy because it's freezing. It's a life preserver. A life pre oh, I like it. I'm going to use that. It's a life preserver. Um, but then I had to do work which I think has bowed me well in my life, which was some really significant acculturation to a place I didn't know. Yeah. And that has been a skill that I've had to pick up over and over in my life because I go to Ghana. I speak English because English is the um, official language in Ghana and it's what mm. you learn in school. And I spoke tree um, at home, but um, I didn't speak it perfectly. So my parents said, hey, just speak English. That's what you're going to have to learn. I had to figure that out. Um, I had to figure out how to have a completely new class of people. I go from a place where everyone looks like me. Now I'm in school and everyone is not like me. So I have Anna and Catherine in my class. There were no mm. Annas or Catherines in my class okay. in Ghana. No? Right, no, there were okay. Amas and, you know, Quesia. So very different. Okay. Um, you know, and I have Kenny Cheng from Hong Kong and I have, you know, Wasim, who's, you know, Muslim. And I have Shirinjif, who's like, um, uh, Sikh. It's it's a whole different set of people. And so I had to learn how to acculturate to being in England. And that was really um, challenging, but in many ways, an experience that has been just beautiful for me and helped me to be able to move to different places. And when I meet new people, I think I now enter rooms with a sense of curiosity because I say, oh, this is interesting. Here's someone I don't know. And I'm used to being with people I don't know and just asking questions and seeing beauty in difference rather than seeing it as something odd or something to be um, um, denigrated or mocked mm. because that was just my experience growing up in England. Yeah. Just a melting pot. Absolutely. So that, that kind of leads me to um, when we first talked about you coming and be our guest speaker for Black History Month, you said, well, Ken, I don't, I don't know if I'm the right person for you because mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not I'm not really African American. I was born in Ghana, raised in England, so I don't I don't really have necessarily an American mm -hmm. black experience growing up for sure. Yes, you know, obviously you do now because you've been in the United States for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Would you be comfortable talking to us about what your experience has been being a Black person in Ghana, yes. Being a black person in England, being a black person in the United States, mm. and and what what similarities there are, what differences there may be, is that something you what feel? What a phenomenal question. So let me start with Ghana and say one thing that's interesting is if you look historically at the African identity, like the Pan African identity, it has grown because in Ghana, for example. Um, Ghanaians, like most other African countries, did not have a sense of them being African. Mm. It, it didn't exist um, until you get to the late 19th century and with the rise of the transatlantic slaves, slave trade, there becomes this collective sense that we are African. Before, you wouldn't even necessarily say you were Ghanaian. It was very mm. tribal mm. because you, you moved at the speed, the speed of your feet. And so you'd live in your own village with your own people and you'd be Akan, which is a tribe, a large, the largest tribe in Ghana. Or you may be Ashanti, or you might be Ewe, or you might be Fanti. So it's very specific to where you grow up. So it's been interesting, even as Africa comes into this consciousness about who we are as a group of people, 
um, to think about what it meant for me. Um, I didn't grow up thinking of myself as African. I grew up thinking of myself as Ghanaian. Then I moved to England, and in England, the designation for me was Afro-Caribbean, hmm. right? You well, have African— That's interesting. That's that's the designation. If you're okay. filling out a census, you would be Afro-Caribbean. That may have even now changed because they use another one sociologically called BAME, which is like Black, African, and um, what is the M? There's a there's an M of something origin. It's changed since I've been here because I've now been here, I don't know, 15 or so years, but it was BAME. So it was a very different experience. What I would say is that in England, because of the Commonwealth, and this is colonialism with the British Empire and um, a lot of Indians, a lot of Pakistanis, people from um, Ghana, from Nigeria, from Kenya, Tanzania, from Zimbabwe, um, are all in England, um, you'd have this sense of, yeah, we all share something in common, i.e. the Brits came to our country and took stuff. Um, and now <laughs> we're here. <laughs> or you'd have the Windrush Sorry generation. Yeah, I know, right? The Windrush generation coming from Jamaica and from the um, Caribbean islands, Trinidad, St. Vincent, Barbados, you know, all of those places coming to England. It was always a melting pot. So one of the things that was good for me is I never felt, although I was a minority, I never felt alone. Because mm. you can be a minority and not feel alone. Right. In the same way you can be in a crowd and still feel alone, right? Mm -hmm. So I didn't feel alone. I would go to school with people who looked like me. I would go to a church community that was very multicultural and diverse. Um, and, you know, I didn't have any really adverse experiences. Um, I remember my father, my late father, fighting for me to make sure that I applied myself scholastically and didn't just fall down the rabbit hole of being um, a, a black boy who was good at sports and who just followed it. He was very much against it because his background um, coming from Ghana and going through, and it's a long story, but essentially went through about four or five countries just to finish his his undergrad because he was mm. very, um, you know, he was social, he had, he was social, his social economic status was very tenuous. Mm. Um, and so he didn't want that for me. And I was fortunate because I did well enough in school and I was able to get through school. I love school. I hardly missed any days of school. I had entire years where I had zero absences. I mean, I love school. I love school, love my classes, love my friends, had a good experience for the most part um, in England. I mean, very good. Strong church experience, strong school experience, uh, was happy to be there. And then when I moved to, in to America, I remember talking to a friend of mine, actually he lives in Florida. I should have told him I was coming. Um, and we were Sorry, talking about- find out. <laughs> he'll find out when I left. Uh, we were talking about the differences between um, being black in America and being black in England. And he said something to me that I'll never forget. He goes, listen, he goes, you have a British accent. That's great. Um, but here, before people know you have a British accent, you're just another black guy. And I was like, oh, okay, well, thanks for telling me. I wasn't asking you. He's a black guy himself. <laughs> and he just said, yeah, you know, the skin in which you walk um, is the first, um, is basically the first line that people will interact with before you open your mouth and then, and they know your story and they know where you've come from. And that's going to be good and bad for you. And so I remember coming here and trying to understand 
who I was, recognizing I don't have the African-American experience, which is very different to the African experience, which is very different to the Afro-Caribbean experience, which is different to the Afro-British experience. Very, very different. So I've had to go through my own sense of acculturation. As a black person, I've had to learn a lot about the history of African-American people. Because in some instances, there's been a... Um, uh, there's there's been sometimes tension between different black communities because you may have people coming to America, let's say from Africa or the Caribbean, who would have stereo or stereotypical or negative um, stereotypes about African Americans, and so much of it comes because they would say, well, why are they complaining about injustice? They should just work harder and be better in school. And it's too much to unpack, but I would at least say this. Number one, most people who go to other countries and are able to leave their country of origin are the best people that come. They're the ones who are the most educated. They have the means, they have the connections, and they are hungry when they arrive in America or in England. And they're going to work hard. They're going to push their kids, you know. The, the joke becomes, do you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a doctor, right? That's what you want as, a, <laughs> as an immigrant. So you push your kids. But unfortunately, what happens is then you can have this um, almost sort of obnoxious um, looking down upon of other black people until you get to the second generation. And now your kids are here. Um, and when they have kids, they're just like the others who've lived here the whole life. They're not as hungry. They don't have the same desire to do what was done before. And then you have to start dealing with similar challenges that immigrants are able to more easily transcend. So I had to learn about some of those challenges between different sort of black communities here in America and also um, educate myself about why, um, you know, MLK was so important, why Jim Crow was so significant, why there's been such a difficulty for African-American families to be able to move forward. The history of redlining, GI bills that were really discriminatory and were not um, appropriately disembursed across different people. What happens generationally, if you think about epigenetics and the way that people are affected when you have multiple generations of people who have grown up not feeling that they are worthy, feeling like trauma, mm -hmm. deep trauma, yeah. not knowing that they are enough, you know, that they're created in the image of God, all of this stuff. Yeah. I had to learn it because, of course, my um, just because I'm black does not Im I'm not downloaded with like black knowledge <laughs> what? right i know right it's amazing yeah because i think sometimes people make the um mistake of saying well you know tell me about what black is like well i may be black but if i haven't done my own reading and and listening to other people yeah. i can be just as ignorant as anyone else i can tell you about my own experience but for me to speak cogently about a larger group of people i need to have been curious and i need to have also done my own um research and that's something i've tried to do so coming to america um i think i've had a consciousness which i didn't have in england because if you want to talk for example about race or equity and opportunity in England, it feels like there was a, a glass ceiling. So you wouldn't necessarily feel like there wasn't a ceiling or you couldn't get ahead. But discrimination would tend to be much more subtle. Mm. 
Mm. Um, whereas in America, I have friends who call me all the time. They're like, Dre, how are you living in America? Wait, they don't sound like that. They're British. They'll be like, bruv, how are you doing it, bruv? I don't know how you do it. You, you feel okay. You feel like, you know, you're going to go out of your house and you're going to be safe. I'm like, America's a very large country. I drove from Michigan to Seattle. If you did the same in Europe, you'd go from London to Moscow. It's very large. You wouldn't ask someone in Belarus what it's like to live in, you know, in yeah. Paris. It's different. So I said, it depends on where you are in America. But I've had to learn that this very large country, um, you know, does have uh, a history of racism that it's still grappling with. And so you tend to move more aware of it in America. And yet, paradoxically, I think you can still move forward in ways you can't in England. It's fascinating. So in England, it feels like it's not there, but you may not be able to move forward as much because there is less, even more, um, even more challenging than the issues of race, the issues of class mm. in England in ways that aren't here in America. Do you think that also because there isn't as much discussion that that might have, I mean. It's starting to come in the yeah. last 10 or 15 years. I've noticed a lot of practitioners in the equity space and around race in a way that was not there when I was in England. Mm. So that is a new conversation happening in England that did not exist before. But it's much more mature and it's significantly more developed in America, right? You have, you know, for example, uh, critical theories and other things. And I know, you know, I'm not saying that I co-sign everything on it, but let's just take that for example with Delgado. That has happened for years in Eng in America and it's now becoming more mainstream in England as part of conversation. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just been a really interesting, interesting uh, last 10 or so years being in America and seeing the challenges and opportunities that exist for black people. Um, and I say black people, not people of color, because people of color encompasses, you know, brown people and people who are non-white. And sure. I'm using black um, specifically. Um, yeah, it's it's been different. It's been challenging. But um, I've enjoyed being here. I like being in America. I appreciate the opportunities I've been able to have while seeing the challenges and the progress that still needs to happen uh, in this country. That's a very long answer. No, that's what we were looking for, though. I think that I think that I think sometimes we try to give short answers to questions that require nuance and, and understanding. So I appreciate the, the, the good answer that you gave to that. And I appreciate you being open and, and kind of sharing your experience with that. Um, one of the uh, things that I thought was just I loved about your sermon was how you uh, wove Simon of Cyrene uh, mm. mentioning I think I think probably there's a lot of people out there maybe even who have theology backgrounds who are surprised to find out that Simon of Cyrene was from northern Africa yes um, that it, it seems like at times within um, it seems like at times the church has downplayed the role that uh, that African countries have played within Christianity um, and the Christian influence, frankly, that that's permeated Africa long before colonialism took place. Yes, um, and I love that you talked about Simon of Cyrene and brought that into the discussion. And I thought it was just really, really bright the way that you layered that in with carrying um, a burden that you didn't want to carry, mm. and 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 how that wove in. I thought really well with 
with the um, experience here in the States yes. um, with slavery um, yes. and the repercussions that came out of that. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate that. I thought that was, that was excellent. I wonder if you want to, uh, this is one of the things, the beautiful things about the podcast, it gives you a little bit more time to, to kind of delve a little bit deeper. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the Christian influence on the African continent that, that maybe some people might not be as aware of and some of the things that you think maybe the average person listening to this podcast might not know about Christianity's influence in in Africa. Yeah. So, like you said, I mentioned Simon of Cyrene, who is from North Africa. Mm-hmm. I also mentioned um, Augustine or Augustine, who was also a North African theologian. You can go to Ethiopia and find some of the oldest African traditions um, out in Ethiopia, and you will realize that people in Africa, just like people in parts of Europe at one point or in South America, yes, there were some people who were animist. Yes, there were some people who were um, non-Christian, but there was uh, there was a more than a kernel. There was a strong, growing and mature Christian religion happening in the continent. I think the problem was that often when these civilizing missions were done by Europeans to Africans, they were bringing not just the content, but the container of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Oh, I said something, right? Yeah. Because I think that's a much larger problem that we often struggle with and a lot of traditions struggle with is they give you the content and the container. And they say, hey, if you want the content of the gospel in Jesus, it must also look like the container we delivered it to you in. Mm-hmm. The rhythm we delivered it to you in the cadence we delivered it to you in, the clothing we delivered it to you in, the food we delivered it to you in. And if you don't take all of that, then the contents actually become less. It's not as genuine, it's not as good, it's not as worthwhile. And that's why you could go to places, and I'm so happy to see it changing now, where, I don't know, you're in Timbuktu, you're in Accra, Ghana, and and they're dressing in a way, and they can dress like that because they have the ability, if they so choose, to be cosmopolitan in their dressing. But at least in the back in the day when you'd have them dressing to ape European standards and basically saying, well, the way we dress is not really appropriate and holy enough to come before God, that's obviously problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a growing awareness that, no, the content of the gospel is the good news, right? Um, it's, uh, I always love Galatians 5.1. It's for freedom I have come to set you free. And there's so much liberty in it. And I think it's problematic when we bring the gospel and it comes looking as shackles rather than as a key for freedom and for a deeper life in Christ. And Africa has had um, deep, deep religious traditions with God and also deep Christian roots Um, That has lasted much longer than many places in Europe. And I think it's important to recognize it. It's important for a generation of Africans who are growing up, some of who want to push back against Christianity because they just say, well, it's a white man's religion, right? It's a European religion. You can go, no, 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 hold on, my brother or sister. Um, If that's the only reason you want to ditch it, let's just look a little closer um, at what Christianity um, is and how long it's been um, in in Africa. So it it was important for me when I saw Simon of Cyrene and seeing what happened in North Africa to just name it. Um, 
to just name it and just say this is part of it. Jesus was in Africa, right? After birth, the family fled to where? Egypt. So, you know, we know he trod those grounds. We know he was on the continent. We know that was the place of safety for him, even though, of course, you get to Exodus and, you know, Egypt isn't doing such great stuff. But at some point, that was the place he went. And I think putting Africa within that context, even though most of us know about it, but um, putting the pieces together usually starts to fire and trigger different thoughts about who you, about who we are and about the fact we are also in the Bible story, you know, the yeah. Ethiopian eunuch and, you know, Candace of Ethiopia and Queen, you know, uh, the Queen, Queen of She, all of these things. We're, yeah. we're in the story and representation matters. It is. It matters to know you're there. So I'm curious. I have a question. Yeah. You you mentioned at one point during your your message that um, that there were some positive aspects of Protestantism coming in, specifically Adventism, and it made me think about a friend of mine who is uh, now a Hebrew scholar in the U.S., but he's not from the U.S. Uh, he came from a place where Adventism came into his community and it was kind of the same sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I think especially because Adventism originated in the United States, a lot of what came with Adventism were, were, were these specifically, you know, Victorian even mm. influences of, of what was right and wrong. And so the academic work that he's doing actually is trying to help his community disentangle what is Adventist Oh, Christian yes. and what is westernized Christianity mm -hmm. is that do you have it how have you uh processed that for yourself yeah it's a I think it's a great question um let me see if I can start from the beginning you had mentioned that in my sermon I noted that there were some things that were positive and truly there were because I, th I think we can go so far in one direction, we demonize any type of missionary work which happened on the continent, and they don't. it doesn't need to be demonized. Okay. There were people who went there with good intention, and of course, good intention doesn't presuppose that your intention cannot still be harmful, yes, okay. mm -hmm. but they did do good. They came and they helped people. They People met Jesus because of them. They established missions and schools and hospitals and institutions that... I am a beneficiary of, and so are my family. And for that, I'm grateful. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned the entangling of, you know, container content with things like clothing. Music was certainly one of those things um, where people would just ditch things which really were neutral. It's just culture, mm -hmm. you know, and culture to me is a neutral container. You can look um, at culture with a critical eye and you can throw some things and you can keep some things, but they tended to throw everything out and replace it with just Victorian culture mm -hmm. and say, this is what it is because these are the people that brought it um, to us. Um, I remember perhaps 10, no longer, maybe 15 or so years ago, being at a Black History Sabbath myself at Andrews University. I was the speaker. And I'm standing on the front row and they're, you know, they're playing music. The, the church is worshiping. This isn't a church that would have been an African-American church. And I felt very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable because I had swallowed this idea that being holy and being reverent mm. meant that you essentially were a brain on a stick. 
Mm-hmm. There was no sense in which your body was brought to worship. Right. Where did I get that from? Not from my, not from Ghanaians. Mm-hmm. If you've gone to any Ghanaian event, literally any, a funeral, a baby dedication, a wedding, people are dancing. Mm-hmm. And now you'll see it in churches, but that's new as well where they would have instruments. In fact, the choirs in Ghanaian churches, typical ones, will will process down the middle. So they have sort of acts of entrance and acts of of exit. So they'll process down the middle with a singing band. That's what they call it. Then a choir. They're playing an instrument. They're playing maracas. When they sing, they move and they sway. Mm -hmm. But at some point, someone had decided that it wasn't appropriate. You should be a head on a stick. It should be a cerebral religion. And they had left their body at the door. And I realized and had to deconstruct the fact that I had taken on and left cultural things, which were neutral and had decided to moralize things like moving in church or lifting a hand or shouting a hallelujah because some cultural norm had been put on me that Jesus had no interest in in being on me. So those have been things that have been incredibly interesting for me to watch. And I'm much more suspicious of cultural things now Hmm. within our church. In England, we always had this weird thing that would happen. So a lot of the black Caribbean and African British Adventists would tend to be, um, they would tend to, oh, this is what it is. They would do no caffeine. Don't drink coffee. That's terrible. Don't drink coffee. Love meat. So they'll eat meat. Eat chicken. Eat eat steak. You know, jerk chicken. They love the whole nine. And then the white Adventists, they're like, vegetarian. You must be vegetarian. We're Adventists. Pounding Starbucks. <laughs> love coffee. Right? And you're just like, what are we doing, friends? You know? What are mm-hmm. we doing? And it's this it's going to this idea of disentangling culture from Christ and mm-hmm. what is really important versus what isn't. So it's something I do often and I now look with suspicion, I think, when anyone tends to throw away something which is cultural and try and make it biblical because often it's a very flimsy argument. So I look at it with a lot of suspicion and ask diagnostic questions until I get to the root of it. And then Galatians 1, I'm like, Christ came to set us free. So I'm curious about that diagnostic questions that you were talking about because I think that probably one of the most difficult things that people can do in religion is disentangle what's cultural versus what's biblical. Um, You know what I mean? You Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying there? Because I think that a lot of the discussions about right and wrong in the church come down to a lot more about what I think culturally than Mm -hmm. what the Bible has. Dancing is a great example of that. How many times in in the Psalms does it talk about dancing? How long? I mean, and we... We talk about David dancing before the Lord, but it wasn't like that, except that somehow his wife was upset because he was Mm. showing too much or something. Mm. So it's an interesting thing. How do you go about disentangling? What are those diagnostic questions that you say, okay, I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to do the right thing. And there's certain things that we do culturally that aren't the right thing, right? There sure. are there uh, culture isn't always neutral. Correct. There are some really bad cultural practices mm-hmm. out there no matter what culture and and I think that's one of the privileges for those of us who have lived in different places. You kind of start realizing that 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 in many places culture is neutral, but there are places where 
where it's like, this is a part of the culture that really should change. Yes. And the gospel should change this. Yes. So how do you go about figuring that out? What's your what's your diagnostic on that? Well, the first thing would be to see if there's anything in the Bible that clearly says you ought not to do it. Um, so if we take dancing, for example, well, there's nothing in the Bible that says you ought not to do it. You might be able to do some really poor exegesis in a text or two, but there's nothing there. There's no <laughs> prohibition. Right. There's no prohibition. So if there's no prohibition, then I think you can move to the second question, which for me would be, um, if there's no prohibition, what does that do for me in terms of my internal conviction? And also, what does it do for the impact that it has on my neighbor? Because this idea of love God mm -hmm. and love your neighbor yeah. would then say, okay, love God, let me see, is there a prohibition clearly from God? Let me go internally to see if the Spirit is prohibiting just me from doing this, and let me see if me doing this would be harmful to my neighbor if I was to go and do it. Um, so I think those things tend to be really good diagnostic questions to help me figure stuff out. And in some places, you may do something. In other places, you may not. Um, so I know I've been in congregations where dancing would be just really bad, right? Not because it's morally bad, but because they have a weaker faith. That's what Paul calls it, right? In Corinthians, like you just have a weaker faith. That's fine. So for your sake, we won't do it. It's not wrong, but we just won't do it. Um, and in other places, you know, you go to a church and they are praising the Lord and they are dancing and that is something which is wonderful and which is appropriate and which draws people in a closer relationship with God. So I think it's it's nuanced. I think it's being humble with the freedom that we have because I think the problem becomes people who get a lot of freedom and you don't want to use your freedom in a way that becomes a stumbling block to other people or be snaring at people like, oh, look at you, you're so backward. Oh, oh you didn't know you couldn't do that. And going back to my black history thing, yeah. that was what put me off. Because even though I thought I couldn't do certain things, the person who was talking to me had kind of leaned over and he goes, hey, you know you can dance, right? Or you know you can put your hand up. And I was like, <laughs> and he goes, yeah, don't, don't, let those, don't let those white people tell you what you can't do. And I hated it because number one, it was, um, it's happening in church. And then it makes me feel as if, wait, are you saying that I'm stupid and I'm doing something just because some group of people have told me? And then are you snaring at me because you feel like you have freedom? I don't. So don't do that, friends. If God is... If you've gone through a journey with God, you find no prohibition in the Bible, your conscience is clear with the spirit and you're doing something, don't don't go and rub it in people's face and be like, well, you should be just as free as I am to do whatever I'm doing. Because it's I think people grow at different um, rates and at different stages of their life. And there's, I mean, going to that dancing metaphor, there's nothing wrong with not dancing, is Correct. there? Correct, exactly. I mean, there's, that's, I mean, and, you know, I think it's, when it's really hard to sing without feeling a rhythm because I've said, I've heard people say, well, we sh you shouldn't have rhythm in oh. music. Well, you take the rhythm out, you don't have music anymore. That's, I mean, even the parts that you, even the most... Uh, I don't know. Even the even the music that some some people would say has no rhythm, it absolutely has a rhythm. Yes. And to say otherwise is to not really understand music. Yes. But to go to that, there's sometimes where it's neither right nor wrong. Mm -hmm. It's 
or maybe it's not wrong to not do it, even mm-hmm. though you have that Christian liberty to do it. Hey, um, I, I want to make a comment which I had met, which I had meant to make, and I think it's really important because it's Black History Sabbath, and I know that you also will make a, a point of celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month mm-hmm. and just recognizing the diversity of people in your right. congregation. This is why I think it's so important. In fact, this is crucial, and I might need my wife's help on the date here. It's important because here in North America, we have hit, I think, we are, we've hit almost a ceiling when it comes to evangelism and people coming into the church who are North American. And more and more, you find immigrant communities who are moving here and who are the fastest growing. Mm-hmm. So in our conference, whenever you look at baptisms and fastest growing churches, well, it's a Hispanic work. Um, you could go to New York and it might be the Hispanic work or once upon a time it was the Caribbean work. When you in the 50s and 60s, the regional work down in the south were the ones baptizing the most people. Now you find the general conference or you find the Adventist church worldwide. Globally, the places that are growing the most are Eastern Africa and then it's like Southeastern Africa and then the inter-American division. It's people of color. So I think we have to have these conversations about what it looks like to have um, culture versus gospel and container versus content because you have a church growing outside of North America which does not look like the church that started here in North America in the ninth century well, or nineteenth century, and that's the and I mean honestly culturally, uh, let's just go ahead and take my ethnicity, Caucasian. Mm-hmm. Caucasian culture today looks very different than it looked like when my parents were growing up mm. or my grand. Th- cultures shift over time, even within the ethnic. Heritage area, and so I think one of the things that we have to be thoughtful about. I mean, it's one of the reasons I think sometimes we have tension um, when it comes to different age demographics because one age demographic is like, whoa, whoa, whoa! This is this is what was meaningful and deep and special to me when I was, you know, throughout my life. Yes. And now, younger generation, you're coming along with what's meaningful and deep and important to you. And I don't feel that because that's not what I grew. I mean, to me, my my kids ruthlessly mock me because I I do I love. Uh, I grew up. My dad. We would listen um, starting on Friday evening. Sabbath begins. We listen to King's Heralds yes. and we listen to Del Delker. Yes. And if you have no idea <laughs> who I'm talking Bangers. about, yeah. If, if you have no idea who I'm talking about, then. I'm, I'm, not suggest- I'm not suggesting you you go figure it out. I'm just saying, but to this day, my kids will I will I will be like I kind of want to hear this song because it it has something for me. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, my dad uh, my dad was very musical, and uh, we were always traveling to different churches for him to sing at these different. And my mom played for him to mm. to do that. That's how the two of them met. He was a pastor. Oh uh, no, he wanted no. But he uh, he was a, a physician's assistant mm. who he had wanted to be a singing evangelist. And at the Seventh Adventist Church, cut singing evangelists out of their budget just as my dad was graduating with his oh. degree in religion and a minor in in, in music. My dad worked his way through school um, by doing. Uh, being an LPN nurse. Mm. Um, and so long story, he basically went, became, but he always kept that 
pastoral side of him. I and see. so we would travel around and he would be singing at all these different churches. And and so to this day, like I hear a song like Welcome Home Children, and it's that to me is every bit as powerful as um, the music that we play on a week-to-week basis here at Whole Life. And I think there'll probably be people that would probably almost fall out of their chair if they knew the old stuff that I love. I love hymns. Yeah. I, I love they have deep and powerful meaning, but I also recognize that for my kids, they didn't grow up with that. That's yes. not what, and, and maybe in some would say, well, you did a poor job kind of passing it on. I'd say, no, I think every generation deserves to have the music that's meaningful to them. Hmm. And and so when I need my fix, I know how to go find it. Yes. And what I love, one of the things that's important to me that I love is that when my children come home, Yes. and and you, know, you, you have Eden that's you know, 10 years old right now, and you know you give it you know you give it a couple years and you as a pastor and i don't think just as pastors whether you're a pastor or whether you're just somebody who attends you want your kids to want to go to church hmm. if church is meaningful to you you want it to be meaningful to them hmm. and yet there's times where we we're going back to that what you said container yes versus content, content. Mm-hmm. we get so obsessed with the container yeah that that we that we forget it's really the content. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that we try to think about here at Whole Life is how do we create a container that marginalized people or people who may be on the periphery can take the content in, that we can deliver the content in. Mm-hmm. And and again, I do think there's rights and wrongs, but I think that probably sometimes we get a little bit more hung up on things than we should. Yeah. And um, anyway, so I really I resonated with what you were saying there, um, and uh, and it just it, I think it's an important thing for us all to think about. I mean, I want my kids to love Jesus. Hmm. I want that when they yeah. come home from college, when my son comes home from boarding school, I want them to wake up Saturday morning because we don't force our kids to go to church. Yeah, I want them to wake up and say, hey, Dad, I want to come to church. Yes. And that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that just, as a father, mm-hmm. makes me happy. Mm-hmm. My kids want to be at church. I mean, my daughter just um, called me last week and she said, hey, Dad, um, I just, it's so hard for me. I'm up, you know, at this Adventist college that has lots of uh, Adventist churches, but there's just not a whole life there that, mm. that I connect with. And so I was watching you and one of my friends came in the room. And they go, oh, I love that church too. And so we're starting to watch the church together online. Wow. And, and, you know, I want my kids to have the the community experience. I don't want them to, I think that's an important part of church. I think just sitting and watching by yourself long-term mm-hmm. um, has some drawbacks to mm-hmm. it. I think that inviting people in to that experience with you, I don't think it has to, you know, I don't think you have to have 40 people. I think five or six people together, that's, that's you know, Bible says we're three or, you know, two or three are gathered in my name. So it made me happy to, that my daughter was starting to go, well, you know what? Right. I may not be fine, but I'm going to draw a group of people together and we're going to do that. Yes. And, but that's what you want, right? You want your kids to want to go to church and that you want to go to church with them when they're there. And so that's a super important thing and I think that maybe more people ought to think about whether it's more important to them to keep what they like or more important to keep the people they love. Mm. Don't you think? Repeat that again. It's more important to keep, it's more important to, to, to decide, it's important for you to decide whether it's what you like is more important than the people you love. Mm. 
so the, the if the vessel that you know I want this mm. this is I hear that all the time right this is my church mm. that's the thing that'll drive me up the wall the quickest mm. it's not your church last time I heard it was Jesus church mm. and all the rest of us are gratefully adopted mm. <laughs> you know Jesus church I'm grateful that he accepts me and it's not it's not my church it's not Ken's church mm. you know Ken I think that there's a there's there's some there's an additional piece to that yeah some of the some of the research and I know some of the books that you've read as well about younger generations and what is actually important to them yeah and I think I think the container is is important because I think that it matters I think people like to be able to speak their own language and and experience God in in a way that's culturally um appropriate for them. I think another thing that makes whole life an important place is our commitment to service. Hmm. Because I think that there are generations, you know, there's your younger generations who are saying, wait a minute, Christianity is not about sitting in a pew every week and saying all the things and then leaving it behind when you go out and to do your quote unquote real life. And so I think, I think one of the important things according to the research that that I've read is community service, actually doing something good in Mm -hmm. your community. And second of all, inclusion is really important to, to emerging generations. Mm -hmm. And that those are two things that we really value at whole life as well. So I think, I think that we could have, you know, whatever cool stuff, smoke and lights and whatever. And it wouldn't matter if we didn't have the element of let's do something important here. Yeah, what a great point, Melanie. Thank mm. you for saying that. And I think that's one of the things that, because I asked Kyla, I said, there, I know that there are several churches where she's in the area there that have a similar worship format. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of what you said that she's like, yeah, but they don't, the inclusion's not the same. The mm. service component's not the same. And I think I think you made a really good point that, that that's a very important thing. And surely we can appreciate our kids for wanting to serve their communities, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you see that probably a lot on the, you, I mean, you, you're you a pastor on a college campus just like we are here. And you yep. see, I mean, people are like, oh, the upcoming generation. I'm like, dude, they're better than we were. Come on. I mean, do you see that? I think they actually have higher ideals yeah. in some ways. I agree. Um, it may present itself as being lazy, but it's because they want more. Yeah. I've never even thought of that. This That just came to me. So they may stay in their room and they may seem less engaged with church, but it's not because they're less serious. It's because they're more serious. They want more. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We see we have I Max hope. who... Uh, oh, yes. We have a you representative. Wanna, you want to you weigh in on that, Max? <laughs> Is that you, Max started violently wa- waving yeah, yeah, his yeah, finger yeah, yeah, in yeah. agreement. He did. No, I, just, I don't have my mic hooked up, so it sounds... That's bad. all right. But no, I, I totally agree with what you said. Uh, just getting out of college, living that, mm-hmm. what you just said, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, I, I see that too, um, and and I think that for me it's it's I'm isn't it good for for a younger generation to understand that it's important for them to be parents to their children as opposed to make money hmm. um, to spend you know eighty hours at work but never see your children. I mean, I don't know. I I think that you know some of the you know we talked about bad cultural ideals. I think the workaholism that is worshipped like an idol in the mm. United States has been devastating to families. It's been devastating to children. It makes me happy when I start seeing younger, the younger generation going, no, no, uh, 
I'll work an honest 40 hours. I'll work an honest 50 hours, but I'm not, I'm going to go home and I'm going to be with my family and yes. I'm going to make sure that my kids know my name and, and know who I am, mm. you know? And, and so I think that's, uh, I think that's a healthy thing. I think that, um, you know, sometimes as Americans, we're a little too self-congratulatory on, on, on unhealthy uh, work habits. Can I make a, a comment? Um, this I, I was thinking about this because of the election season, which is coming up, and it seems to me that the witness of the church and the witness that whole life church has, for example, because coming in here, you're, this church is like the United Colors of Benetton, right? You have everywhere <laughs> people, from all different parts of the of the globe here, and it's beautiful. I met people from, you know, at least. You know, um, four continents here, right? I met mm -hmm. South Americans, Africans, yep. Europeans, North Americans. Um, and it was absolutely beautiful. And I thought to myself, this is a witness against the um, rancor and the toxicity that you will often see out in the world against people being able to come together who are different. Mm -hmm. um, being able to have a Black History Sabbath is also a witness of celebrating the diversity that God has given to us, being able to have a worship team where you can see yourself at some point in the worship team or some point in the um, worship program is a witness to the fact that we serve a God who is heterogeneous, not homogeneous, that we are Adventists who believe in Revelation 14 and, you know, every tribe, kindred and tongue yeah. are going to get the gospel. So, um, I'm saying that and also connecting it, I think, to young people and what they want to see because they see this as a really authentic representation of what they live day to day. I'm with different people and yet we're able to work toward a larger aim. We should be able to do that in the church as well. So I think what you're doing here as a team at Whole Life, I think it's incredible. Yeah. I, I, think, I think it's incredible. I think it's subversive in some ways being able to walk into a place like this and seeing people like this. It's amazing. Well, we appreciate you using that in a nice yeah. way. Sure. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, I love that. We'll yeah. claim that. Yeah, we'll okay. claim that sure. for sure. We're positively, positively subversive. subversive. Yeah. yeah. So, Andreas, uh, we are... I, I think I could talk to you for another hour, but I do think we probably need yeah, to wrap, wrap it up, up for the sake of the people who've gotten to their uh, job right now and they're seen out in the parking lot like, man, I got to get this uh, Got to get this podcast. Uh, Daniel's going to be 45 minutes yeah. late to work. So, um, <laughs> Melanie, we did have a question that came in. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, can we, can we uh, put that out there? Uh, Andreas, one of the things that we do is we give our online viewers, which we have quite a few, give them the opportunity to ask questions and to weigh in on what's happened. So Melanie has a question that came in this week that I uh, would like to put your way and see what you think. Yeah, yeah this is from uh, Anonymous. Uh, the question is, uh, I may be incorrectly remembering the comment, but I believe Pastor Bakai said something like, our hope does not lie in the acceptance of Western culture. It seems we live in a time when American Christians place more emphasis on their own pet cultural norms, claiming their biblical values, than living Jesus' life of acceptance and grace. So how should we respond when it is suggested that loving God and loving others is not enough? I feel like we've been answering that for at least 45 mm. minutes, right? The <laughs> container content. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I'd say I hope does not lying in accepting Western culture or just Eastern culture or just African culture blindly. Yeah. 
but neither does it mean subjugating any of them to Western culture and saying we need to toss them away and continue to live like American Victorian norms because that was the most holy thing. It isn't. I think we should be grounded and free in Christ and we should be happy um, to express ourselves in ways that are not prohibited, um, that the Holy Spirit does not convict us otherwise, and that allows us to still love our neighbor well. We can be free in that. Um, I do think the person is asking a very important question about um, how we respond to the suggestion that loving God and loving others is not enough. Maybe if that is a really like saccharine, like candy floss type of love, where you're just, I don't know, dancing in a field of lilies. <laughs> but love is hard. Love is yeah. what took Jesus to the cross and not mm -hmm. off the cross, yeah. right. right? Love is loving your enemy when they hate you, when they vote differently than you, when they hold views you absolutely do not espouse. To be loving is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. It's being willing to lay your life down. So I believe if we're talking about that kind of love, if other people want to denigrate it and say it's not enough, then they just have misunderstood what love is. And um, love is who God is. So to say that being loving is not enough is to me the same as saying, well, being godly is not enough. And at that point, I, I don't know what else I would say to you. So I think it's a misunderstanding of terms. And if just love is, you know, chocolate and candy, then sure, that that is not what God is calling us to. But if it's a hard, sustaining, um, tenacious, you know, not giving up type of love, then that is what the world needs. That's what the world needs more of, not less of. Love it. Mm -hmm. Well, folks, that's uh, that's been a fun episode 401. Andreas, just thank you so much from joining yes, us from Walla Walla. You. You're always welcome Glad to be here, here anytime. And we just want to again thank uh, Cassandra, Eden, Max, great job on the boards there. Good job. Thanks, Good Max. job. Excellent. Melanie, as always, just fantastic. So just appreciate each one of you, too, that are listening in uh, to the podcast. We, uh, Without you listening, there would be no point in doing this. So thank you so much. And we love love getting those comments back from you. So you know how to send them in. Just uh, send them in on our podcast email. Uh, you can even – Randy's been really hoping somebody would call up our, our line and leave a voice message mm -hmm. so that he can play that on the, uh, on mm -hmm. the show. So go ahead and do that for us if you get a chance. We'd sure appreciate that. And that does bring this episode of This Is Whole Life to an end. Have a great week, family. You know I love you. Go love your world.